We're going to look at uh, the 64th Psalm this evening, briefly, then we'll let you go home. We can hardly read the Psalms without quickly coming to the conclusion that David's relationship with the Lord was nothing short of fantastic. That's probably the only word you could use to describe it. He had a fantastic relationship with the Lord. And it, it was most evident whenever he found himself facing danger. The true colors of his relationship came out at that time. Whenever he found himself in situations that looked like he was absolutely doomed to failure, he learned something that we are still trying to learn. He learned how to cast his burden on the Lord. But he learned something else. He learned how to leave it there. Now, we don't uh, many times have a problem casting our burdens upon the Lord, but we certainly do have a problem sometimes leaving them there. Because we, we take our burdens to the Lord and we, we cast them before him, and, and when we leave, we are thinking, I wonder if God really understood where I'm coming from. I wonder if he's going to deal with it the way I want him to deal with it. And so we take our burdens to the Lord, but we don't leave them there. We take them back with us. We take the burdens of doubt with us when we leave. And so I hope that as we look at this psalm tonight, we will learn what David learned. Now, as, as a tremendous relationship he had with the Lord, he had to learn some things. And that's one of the things he had to learn. He had to learn how to cast his burden on the Lord and leave it there. And this means that in the midst of all of his agitations, all of the adjustments of life that he had to make, David knew what it was to have the compassion of an abiding, the compassion and the abiding comfort of God, the source of all comfort. When weakness and gloominess overwhelmed his soul, his prayer was to be led to the rock that we've been singing about tonight. The rock that he could not get to in his own strength. The rock that he could not get to on his own. The rock that he didn't have enough strength to reach. Now, if the writing of this 61st Psalm was prompted by his exile beyond Jordan during the rebellion of Absalom, then we can understand how calm and how serene David must have been having God as his shelter. In this far, far away distant land, distant territory, exiled, David was comforted by the fact he had a permanent home in the Lord's tabernacle. And so in Psalm 61, we find David in what we might call another cliffhanger of a predicament, a cliffhanger of a dilemma. The stress of his situation squeezes out of him an emotional but, as we'll see, very clear prayer 
from his heart. David's expression in this psalm has turned out to be the timeless language of many of God's people as they themselves pass through persecution, sorrow, and affliction, and all kinds of suffering. Why? Because the language of David expresses something that they felt, but they could not clearly express themselves. How many times have we read the Psalms of David when we were going through some things in our own lives and uh, we conclude that, boy, David, you hit the nail right on the head. That's exactly what I'm feeling right now. But you can't express that. It took David and this unique language of the Psalms to be able to enable us to express how we were feeling. And so once again, God's universal throne room hears the all too familiar voice of his choice servant, David. What does he say? Verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. Now, one of the things we need to notice here that's very important at the outset is David's childlike faith as God's servant literally guarantees him the immediate attention of the sovereign God who is absolutely delighted to hear from him. And that's what it takes. Whenever we want to really hear God, whenever we want God's immediate attention, what does it take? Childlike faith. And that's how David comes. He comes before God with childlike faith, guaranteeing that he's got the immediate audience of the sovereign God. And God is really delighted to hear from us when we come to him in that way. And so when our hearts are overwhelmed, we can have, first of all, comfort in God's heart. Verse 2. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed. Now, when we look at the psalm, we can say, while David was literally at the end of his Literally at the end of the earth. He's not literally at the end of the earth, but he's literally at the end of, or at the edge, at the very edge of where safety and deliverance look extremely distant. He can't see it. It's way, it's too far in the distance for him to see safety and deliverance. He's at a place where life ends and death begins. So he's in a real predicament here. And even though he is physically and emotionally exhausted and drained, and that's what problems do to us sometimes, he knows that the throne of grace is simply a breath away. So what does he do? He do what many of us ought to do. He draws near. Sometimes when people are stressed out, they decide to isolate themselves, to withdraw from all those that are near and dear to them, those who really care about them, those who really love them. Well, David didn't do that. He decided to draw near where he could receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Someone said, 
One said, distance is meaningless because no boundary of life is effective in blocking prayer. Distance is meaningless because no boundary in life is effective in blocking prayer. For many of us, we see boundaries that block our prayers. But distance is meaningless. And so David cries out, lead me to the rock that is higher than me. The rock that is higher than I. What David was experiencing here was a genuine spiritual instinct. Now many times we have instincts, but not all the time they are genuine and not all the time they are spiritual. And because they are not, they lead us into all kinds of actions that we do not get the kind of results that God is desirous of giving us. But David had a genuine spiritual instinct. And this instinct tells David that he needs a rock for protection. Now, it's not a Bahamian rock we're talking about. Remember when I was in in school, uh, whenever you got in trouble with somebody, and you got in a fight, or a fight was brewing, what was the first thing they pick up? A rock. I remember one time one fellow says, boy, listen, don't bother me, I know karate. He said, well, I know karate. It's a rock. Well, this, is, this rock that David is talking about is not the cultural Bahamian rock. He needs a rock for protection, but it's not the kind of rock that we would think about. Not just any rock would do. You see, David says the rock must be higher than I. Not only that, but David is saying, listen, Lord, I need this rock. I need to get to you. But I know that I can't get there on my own, so I need your strength. I need your divine guidance to help me to get to you. Now, how many times we get in trouble and we think that we can get to, the, to where we need to go in our own strength? David says, you are all sufficient. I'm nothing. Not only does he need the rock that is higher than him, not only does he need to get to the rock that is higher than him, but he needs the rock to give him the guidance to get to the rock. And that's what we need. God is that rock. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 33 we read, 32, rather we read, Who is God save the Lord? And who is the rock save our God? He's the rock that David is talking about. And this metaphor rock is only used in the Bible to refer to God. It is never used in scripture to refer to mere man. Because... The rock must be someone higher than man himself or he'll never ever be able to find safe haven in it. How many times people needed help, they needed refuge and they went to the mere man and was unable to find the safety and the refuge that they needed. David says this rock that I need must be higher than I. It must be a rock where I can be guaranteed safe haven. And of course, the deity of Christ is in view here when we think about this rock. And by the way, there's something else unique about this rock as well uh, that's also special, and that is the rock must have a cleft in it. Because the cleft is where we find a place to hide from the enemy in times of trouble, in times of problems, in times of difficulty. Remember, 
Fanny Crosby's hymn uh, that she wrote uh, with the words, A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hided my soul, well, in the cleft of the rock, where rivers of pleasure I see. He hided my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hands. That's the rock that David was talking about. The rock with the cleft where he could find enemy, where he could find safety from his enemy. And so as David faces this dilemma, this predicament, this cliffhanger of a problem, he finally declares, he finally clearly admits that he does not have the wisdom and the strength to direct his own steps. So he asks the Lord to guide him to himself. Guide him to the rock of ages. How many times have we come to that point in our lives when we have asked God the same thing? Lord, I need to get to the rock. Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I I can't get there on my own strength. I can't get there on my own power. I will not lean on my own understanding. I will trust in you because you're the one who is able to direct my steps. Now, as we look at this, it's obvious that David must have been far away from home when he wrote this psalm. Fortunately, God is not limited by geographic location. And so for us, even when we are among strange people and in strange surroundings, we need to be mindful of the fact that God never, ever, ever, ever abandons us. His all-surpassing strength will always be there. Always be with us. Reminds me of a, an occasion when Jen and I went to a, a ministry conference in in Michigan some, some years ago. And um, shortly after the program started, there was a lady there from, I think it was either Barbados or Trinidad, one of those, those islands. And um, she got sick. They made an announcement uh, to the general gathering that this lady was sick and they had to rush to the hospital. Turns out that um, her appendix had almost ruptured and she had to have immediate surgery. And they made an appeal uh, to all the persons that were there. And these are people from all over the place. You know, people all over the world. She was there from the West Indies. There were people from all over the world. And uh, they made an appeal to help her because she went to a conference. She, she probably, she didn't have insurance for one. And, uh, and so she wasn't expecting anything like this to happen. And, uh, and the Lord's people rallied together and they came to her assistance and she had the surgery and everything. I don't know if she was able to, to attend the rest of the conference. But uh, this is one of the things that come to mind when we think about what David is going through here. God never abandons us. God was there in the presence or in the, in, the, in the person of all those saints who gathered around. And this woman was in a strange country. She was in a strange land and strange surroundings, didn't know anybody. But God was there in the presence of his people, in the midst of his people. And he came to her assistance. And this is what David is saying to us tonight, God will be with us. He will never abandon us. We ought not be discouraged by strange surroundings and strange people because God promised 
that he'd be there. And that's an application that we can take from this with us this evening. When our hearts are overwhelmed, not only do we, can we, we have comfort in God's heart, but we can also, secondly, have shelter beneath God's wings. Look at verse 3. For thou hast been a shelter for me, and a strong tower from the enemy. And so these words confirm, they verify that God is the rock that David is striving and seeking to go to. David had proved him as being dependable over and over again in predicament after predicament. In problem after problem. He had proven him to be a dependable shelter, as he mentions here. But not only that, but he saw him as a strong tower as well. In which the righteous can run for safety, as the writer of Proverbs says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run it into it and is safe. And this is what David was experiencing. What God has always been, he will always be. You believe that? What God has always been, God will always be. Because he said, listen, I am God and I do not change. I am the immutable one. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what David is experiencing when his heart was overwhelmed. He realized that what God had always been to him, God will always be. And he can have confidence in him. Verse 4, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And there's that familiar word, Selah. He says, I want you to stop and think about that. Ponder it. Think about what this means. See, what David is saying is this is the kind of prayer that cannot fail. This is the kind of prayer that cannot fail to touch the throne of God. It is such tender affection and simple trust that God can never, ever, ever refuse when we come to him in this way. And so now we wonder... We, 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 we can now get a better understanding of what God was saying when he said that David was a man after his own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, he says, you are a man after my own heart. And so we can understand how unique this relationship that David had with the Lord. And notice the phrase here, the shelter of your wings. Maybe a reference to the wings of the Cherubim, which overshadowed the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. In other words, David is saying, Lord, I've got, I've got protection, I've got help, because it's all under the blood, the blood of the mercy seat. How many times have you placed your problems under the blood? You know, the, the leader that I work with in, in Jacksonville, in ministry, whenever we had a, a situation... He would also say, he would always say, oh, just put it under the blood. It'll be all right. Boy, in Jacksonville, it was a rough place. That was a rough, rough place. One of the fellows from here went up, came up there to give us a hand in ministry. And he said to me one day, boy, these people in this place is the most teethiest people I ever see. 
And it wasn't long before I got there that I realized that these people were so bad that they will attempt to steal thunder and snatch it lightning. These people were terrible. But my partner would say, you know, just put it under the blood. When, I, when, we, when we first went there, we, we, we had a little a meeting in a little tent on a parking lot. And every single night, when we pack up the program, we had to carry all the chairs, all the equipment, even the light bulbs. We had to unscrew those hot light bulbs. I remember standing on chairs and unscrewing those hot light bulbs and putting them in the box. Otherwise, we come out tomorrow, they wouldn't be there. Those people were so terrible. A lady went in a bathroom one time and turned on her faucet and nothing came out. And she found out that someone went under the floor and pulled out all the copper tubing with all that pressure going through them. And so we had our share of experiences. And, 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 and whenever something happened, uh, I would say to him, are you sure you want to leave this like this? And he says, oh, just put it under the blood. How many times have you put it under the blood? The shelter of your wings. An implication of the blood of the mercy seat. When our hearts are overwhelmed, we can have shelter beneath God's wings. But there's something else. When our hearts are overwhelmed, we can also have confidence in God's promises. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now the word heritage or inheritance, same as possession, in the Old Testament, applied to a number of things in the Old Testament. It applied to uh, the land of Canaan. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 8 we read, and I will bring you in the, into the land concerning which I lifted up my hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give to you for a heritage. I am Jehovah. And so this word heritage is applied to the land of Canaan uh, in the Old Testament. It is also applied to the people of Israel. Uh, as we see in, in Psalm 94 and verse 5. Where we read, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. But the word is also applied to the word of God. As we see in Psalm 119 and verse 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever. For you are the joy of my heart. But it's also a reference to children in the family. As we see in the Old Testament passage of Psalm 127, and verse 3, that we hear quoted many, many times during the baby dedications. Behold, children are a heritage unto the Lord, a heritage from the Lord. This word is also applied to protection from harm. As we see in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17, another verse that we hear quoted many often. By the saints of God, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, 
and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. But this word is also applied to the temple or the, the tabernacle. As we see in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. And so when we look at this passage, the, the tabernacle is probably the primary meaning here since the previous verses mentioned God's tent. And also alluded to the cherubim. And for us today, eternal life is the heritage of those who fear or who reverence the name of God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12 we read, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so David finds confidence in the promises, these promises of God that we too have often find comfort in. But look at verse 6. Thou will prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. Verse 7. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. Now, it's interesting to note that, or it's interesting to note how David switches from the first person to the third person in these two verses. It's interesting because while he is no doubt referring to himself and his kingdom uh, being prolonged as, as uh, stipulated in the covenant that God made with him, uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, his words are also appropriate, more appropriate, for another king. If we apply the words to David, they can only mean or be understood as him requesting long life for himself and the continuation of his kingdom. But applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are literally fulfilled. How? Well, in a couple of ways. First of all, his life was extended endlessly in spite of persecution. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 16. Where the writer of Hebrews writes, Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Or some versions of the power of an endless life. And so we see that fulfilled. We see another fulfillment here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. His years will continue to all generations. And Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 12. We see you shall fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. That's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is fulfilled. But we see something else here alluded by David. He will be enthroned forever. Before God, Hebrews chapter 1 and 8 talks about that. When the writer of Hebrews says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. And of course, David also alludes to something else here. 
in this 6th and 7th verse, and that is the unwavering love and faithfulness that will watch over him like bodyguards. And if you look at the, the 91st Psalm, the first 16 verses talks about that. The unwavering love and faithfulness of God that will watch over him as just like bodyguards. But then look at verse 8. In light of all that God has done for David, David says, Lord, I got to do something back. I have to do something in return. Look at verse 8. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And so we look at this psalm that opens with life on the edge, a life that is in chaos, life that is in uncertainty, life that's facing a cliffhanger of a predicament. And it closes in tranquility, in calmness, in serenity. David has reached the rock that is higher than himself in verse 8. And he is so grateful for reaching that rock By the power of the rock himself. That he determines. To sing praises to the Lord continually. And this is from a tremendous heart of gratitude. He says I will sing praises to the Lord continually. By paying vows of worship. Love and service. Same thing what happened in our lives. When God has come to our aid. And ministered to us in such a way. That he delivers us like he delivers David here. David has determined at least he's not going to be like those who, who make extravagant vows when they're facing pressure and quickly forget those vows when the predicament is passed. He's determined here, I'm not going to be like them. They are a lot like that, but I'm not going to be like them. I'm not going to make all these great big promises to you, Lord, when you get me in a mess and, 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 and then uh, forget about it when the mess is passed. Fellow said to the Lord one time, Lord, I haven't bothered you for 25 years. And if you get me out of this mess, I won't bother you for another 25. David is not saying that. David is not like those who are, are, are been described as those who, who leaps in praise, leaps in prayer and limps in praise. And there are many like that. They're quick to leap in prayer. But when it comes to praise, they go limping along as a cripple. And so in, these, in this, this verse, we see David made a vow to praise God each and every single day as a result of God coming to his aid when his heart is overwhelmed. He said, I will praise you each and every day. But not only that, he says, I will, continue to, I will continually praise God in the good times and the bad times. Let me ask you a question. Do you find something to praise God for each day? There's got to be something. If we look, we'll find some things. What about those new mercies that he provides every day? Scripture says, his mercies are new every morning. Fresh new mercies every single morning. You don't have any mercies. You didn't get any mercies today that were left over from yesterday, you know. The mercies we got today were fresh. 
They were like the manna that God gave to the children of Israel. They came fresh every day. That's our manna. Those mercies. Do we thank him for that every day? Do we say, Lord, thank you for those new mercies? I don't know what they're going to be. But I thank you for them. Do we find something to praise God for each and every day? If we do, we'll find that our heart is lifted from all of the distractions that we face during the course of that day. And we'll find lasting confidence in the promises of God. And so David realizes that when his heart is overwhelmed, he can have confidence in the promises of God. And so like David, each of us can and and should say, not if, but when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Because that's where we can find comfort in God's heart, That's where we can find shelter beneath God's wings. And that's where we can find confidence in God's promises. And I close with the words of Erastus Johnson. Who was inspired to write a a hymn based on this Psalm 61. And here are the words of that hymn. I want you to listen carefully because it sort of reflects some of the things that David is saying and what he's going through. And I quote, Oh, sometimes the shadows are deep and rough seems the path to the goal and sorrows sometimes how they sweep like tempests down over the soul. The refrain says, Oh, then to the rock let me fly to the rock that is higher than I. Oh, then, to the rock let me fly, to the rock that is higher than I. The second stanza says, Oh, sometimes how long seems the day, and sometimes how weary my feet, but toiling in life's dusty way, the rock's blessed shadow, how sweet. O near to the rock let me keep, if blessings or sorrows prevail, or climbing the mountain way steep, or walking the shadowy vale. O then to the rock let me fly, to the rock that is higher than I. O then to the rock let me fly, to the rock that is higher than I. Are you willing to be led to the rock? Are you going to continue to go there in your own strength? Follow David and experience the blessings of the Lord that describes his relationship with with the Lord as one of tremendously fantastic. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your servant David, whom you yourself described as a man after your own heart, simply because of his childlike faith in the Sovereign One, his Redeemer. We pray, O Lord, that we may take the lessons that David has learned 
and apply them to our own lives. So that when our hearts are overwhelmed, we can too cry out to be led to the rock. Not in our own strength, not leaning on our own understanding, but depending on the rock himself to lead us to the rock in order that we may find a safe haven and refuge in the time of trouble. We commit ourselves to you and ask, O Lord, that you would make us ever mindful of what we need to do when those times come. Bless us now as we separate. We ask your blessed benediction, for we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. The Lord bless you and make you a blessing for him as you go.